Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the show formerly known as the Esports Moment, now High Resolution. Last year, the show's first season had a focus on the people behind the scenes of esports. In 2020 and beyond, I'm broadening that scope to include everyone involved in bringing games entertainment to life. Developers, content creators, business people, and esports people. The whole shebang. To get the juices flowing, I'm sharing a recently recorded episode of another podcast, Uplink, where I spoke with David Gator, one of the great writers and narrative designers from Bioware and now of Melbourne's Summerfall Studios, where he's working on chorus and adventure musical. Stay tuned for new episodes, brand new episodes of High Resolution really, really soon. Welcome to Uplink. I'm Seamus Byrne. This new show is all about getting into the minds of some of the smartest people across all my favorite fields of endeavor, technology, science, video game arts, design, all of academia. It's a kind of conversations for nerds, if you will. And I am really excited to have regular chats with leaders and innovators across all of these areas and help share some of that knowledge that's stored in their miraculous brain matter. To kick things off, I'm sharing a few conversations recorded late in 2019. And first up is David Gator. Gator is a Canadian author and narrative designer for games, creating many beloved stories and characters in some of the best-loved role-playing games in video game history. At Bioware Games, he worked on Baldur's Gate 2, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, and the Dragon Age series of games, before setting out on his own after 17 years at the studio. In 2019, it was announced that he was co-founding a new studio based in Melbourne, Summerfall Studios. And at the time we spoke in October, we only knew the first game was set to take the adventure genre somewhere surprising. The game was set to launch a crowdfunding campaign less than two weeks after our conversation during his keynote address at PAX Australia. So as a starting point, uh, I think I'd just love to know what your 
elevator or your barbecue chat version of what you do is? Uh, well, uh, I'm a narrative designer, which is uh, essentially uh, the person who's responsible for laying out the blueprint for the story uh, of a video game, um, which sounds like a lot, and, and it is. It's basically the, the first um, plan for the rest of the team because they need to know uh, if we have characters, what do they look like? And the modelers go in and have to, have to draw them. If we have environments, which, envi- which environments are those going to be? And, and they have to go in and, and create them. So uh, we're, the, we're the part of the team that, that kicks everything off and then uh, writes everything that requires words attached. Awesome. And then, you know, no doubt when people say, oh, and so would I have seen your stuff? This is definitely <laughs> where uh, people might realize that, yeah, David Gator has been attached to some wonderfully awesome role-playing games over the last 20, 20 years, really. In fact, yeah, I mean, 90, was 99, was that pretty much when you first came in? 99 was when I started in the industry, yes. Yeah. Does it feel like 20 years or two years or 200 years? It feels approximately like 120 years. <laughs> awesome. Um, and so, yeah, why do you still love doing uh, this thing that you do? Um, you know, it, ha- it the, the thing that a lot of people don't get, like you get a lot of people who are like, I want to desperately want to get into games. And uh, it, it, it absolutely is. Uh, a fun thing to work on it's different every day you're you're never going to get that uh oh the the same old same old kind of grind i guess um but it also is a job um it, it has there are lots of things you do that this is not this is not fun uh this is this is absolutely work i am so tired of doing this especially when we um crunch is a, is a very big deal in the games industry and you're going to work a lot of long hours and uh, when you get to the end of the project that's when things get the least fun because you're mostly just testing and fixing bugs and rewriting things for the for the 17th time so in those moments you're like why did i get into this industry I, <laughs> I i don't even know but then the game comes out and people are playing it and they don't they don't really see all the terrible like compromises you had to make and and all the the hardship and stuff, they just like, this is, this is amazing. And that's a, that's a wonderful feeling to sort of feed off of the, the, the excitement, the, the people who are at all, all asking questions, they're falling in love with your story. They're falling in love with your characters, perhaps literally. And, <laughs> and I think that is uh, what sort of makes everybody power back up and, and continue on for another, you know, 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And how, how much time do you really get to kind of enjoy that moment? Because clearly, you know, I like you might be already starting work on another project or, you know, right. is there a good bit of of time to really get to absorb how the community is reacting and how people are, you know, starting to cosplay and completely dive into this world that you've helped create? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's uh, the, the cycle of a project is 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 always it goes up and down, right? When you get to the end of a project, it's there's no time. You're working all hours. You can't really pay attention to anything. You don't have a life. And then uh, when you start a new project, um, that's where everything's at its most optimistic. You know, all those those mistakes we made on the last project, we can fix them all. We can do everything better. You have a bit of time to breathe. We're not working long hours. So that's the point where 
you're really looking at how people are playing the last game. Um, often we'll go to conventions um, uh, where we're, we're still trying to sell the last game. And so you'll, you'll go and you'll meet a lot of the fans directly. And that's where you realize that, that people aren't like they are online uh, when you meet them in, in person. Yeah. They're very, they're very super positive and enthusiastic. And, and even the ones who maybe didn't enjoy something about what you worked on, they're generally polite and, and, and talk to you like you're, you're a human being. So that's, that, that's a, that's a, um, good therapy. If you've ever been exposed to fans online, uh, that you certainly wouldn't want to be restricted to just, just meeting them online only. Cause you get a very skewed idea, I think of, of, um, how people actually enjoy what you're working on. I'm, I'm curious if during the kind of that, that development time when things are kind of hard or different, or, yeah, you know, I, I guess even when you're just maybe in the early phases, you know, are there ways in which you get to with other team members? Do you, you know, do you play other games? Do you consume other media to sort of, you know, remind yourselves of, of your own passion for these things? Or, uh, you know, are there other ways that you sort of help re-energize each other during the, that kind of hard time? Um, I think when the, the team's in the midst of things, right. When, when, uh, when we're, we're at our, our darkest days, so to speak, it's, um, there's a bit of a, a bunker mentality, I guess, uh, you, your brothers in arms, brothers and sisters in arms, I should say. And, uh, you're all in it together. So I think there, there often is a feeling like a, when, when things get really difficult, um, rather than the team, you know, beginning to infight or getting upset with each other, I noticed that more often than not, um, that's when we all sort of pull together. We get a little bit punchy. We laugh a lot. We make jokes. Um, so actually, the, I find that that tends to be what what brings the teams closer together. I know I, I've worked on teams of writers, and uh, when we get to the very end of the project, that's when our whatever we're working on uh, tends to get it, it it's funniest. So I'll leave the stuff where we can be funny generally till the last. Cause then, then I know that it'll, it'll work out well and <laughs> we'll be in the office and we start laughing and yeah, there's a, there's an element of fatalism to it. You know, like uh, the, someone comes in and tells you that the thing you've been working on for the last month is, has, has just been cut from the game and you just, you just start laughing because really, there's nothing you can do about it anymore. You just you just roll with the punches, and uh, in this industry, you either learn to to take that in stride, or you won't last very long. I'm I'm just uh, while you're talking about that, I'm imagining the uh, the tiny dancer scene from Almost Famous, where everybody's tired and they're over it, and then you know, and then the right song comes on, and everybody remembers why they're <laughs> why they're in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, keeping up morale. Like, not every team's going to be able to keep up morale. Sometimes things just suck. And uh, so, but you know, you sit down with your team and you're like, um, "Look, we we this happened, and this is why it happened, and and uh, we just need to to march forward." And I think uh, the right from the producer that's in charge of the game down to you know the 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 someone who just started, who's on QA, everyone feels equally committed to getting the game out. You don't want to put all this work in and then not have the game come out. That's, that's the worst feeling. Um, but if, if you, when we're on that march to the end, I think there is a real sense of a, of a common goal and that's what keeps everybody uh, moving and, and motivated. But yeah, you're right. It, 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 there are ups and downs and sometimes we'll come in and 
it's not feeling that great. And then somebody cracks a joke and, and everybody laughs and it's like, it, it, it all suddenly feels better. <laughs> um, so we know, uh, that you are launching a new game studio. Uh, yes. I'm, yeah. Cause my next question is basically what's consuming your brain right now, but with, with that whole idea of a new studio, what, yeah. what is the kind of the, itch as part of that that you're focused on scratching right now sort of what's the what's the thing that's driving the idea behind yes we're, we're doing this new company and it's gonna make cool new things well i left uh, bioware uh which was the triple a studio i worked on for most of my career back in 2016 not not out of any animosity it was just just felt like it was it was time to go i felt like uh i'd been doing a lot of the same things uh over and over again and i mean uh though it wasn't that those things were not good. I just think that it, uh, I can only do the same thing and, and, and still feel a sense of challenge and, and personal, um, <sighs> personal, yeah, personal challenge. I'd say, say would be the, the phrase to use for so long. And that's just me personally. So I was like, I think it's time to move on. And I went and started working at an indie company. Um, but the projects I was working on there didn't work out. So I was like, I want to make something that's mine personally. Uh, I want to make something that's a little bit different. And that's when uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who I'd met in Australia, Liam Esler. Um, we got to talking and our ideas were very similar, uh, almost eerily similar. And so we just thought, do you want to start a project together? And that's when we we came up with uh, Summerfall Studios as the the studio that we have begun here in Melbourne. Um, and it really, the it, if I talk about the itch, yeah, it, it is about doing something that's a, a personal project. It, we're, we're, we're the game we're we're working on is is very different. Uh, there hasn't been really been a game uh, in the ecosystem like it, and I think for me the feeling that I don't precisely know what I'm doing anymore. Like it's not something that I've done over and over again mm. uh, for the last 20 years. That It's something where we hit, we hit points on, on the regular where we're like, how are we going to tackle this? And both of us go, mm, I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. We got to talk to people who have a bit more experience in this kind of thing, even if it's not in the industry and uh, figure it out and, and and do it step by step. And once it's done, it's like you realize what we're doing here is is laying down the foundation for best practices for any games like this that are going to come in the future. And that feels really good. Yeah, awesome. Um, and so, look, I mean, a weird tangent. What what comes first, the idea for a new game or the idea to start a new studio? <laughs> in this case, it was to to start a new studio. Uh, we knew we wanted to make um, a game that sort of hit was of the same type, hit the same sort of market. We sort of felt like uh, um, uh, women gamers had not really been actively addressed by a lot of companies. Like they, they're sort of an afterthought. We thought we could probably do better than that, can't we? And and those sorts of ideas were very similar. What exactly we wanted to make, we didn't know at the time. I think uh, both of us sort of assumed at the beginning that we would probably make an RPG because that's, that's been uh, the majority of my experience. Well, that has been the entirety of my experience in the industry so far. And the same, same with Liam. And, uh, but as we started talking, it's like, well, 
we still love RPGs. It's not that that we're we're over making RPGs, and maybe we'll certainly uh, go back to that at some point. But for right now, just I mean, I, I wish I could talk more about the project. That's that's the hard part about projects. There's this <laughs> there's this part where you're working on a project for a year or two, and you can't tell anyone about it, and, and you really desperately want to because it's so exciting. But uh, we were like, uh, well, we love RPGs, but what about this? Uh, Liam kind of, you know, slid the card across the table. What do you think of that? And I saw that. I was like, oh, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. This this is uh, this is something that I n- now need to do. And that that's that's really where that came from. I suppose you could have people get together and they have an idea for a project and then say, let's form a studio. But I think I actually think that would be more rare. Mm. And so I, I think a good broad question about, I guess, you know, the love of RPGs is, you know, like what do you think is is magical about RPGs? They've clearly have had sort of ups and downs over the years in terms of popularity. Um, right. The rise of, you know, multiplayer is a huge focus. Um, mm. But then, yeah, what, what for you is is part of why you, you love making RPGs? Uh, RPGs cover a pretty big uh, sphere um, there, there are lots of types of RPGs. Although, if you talk to your average RPG fan, there is only one type, one type of RPG, and everything else is is a is a dirty, dirty lie. <laughs> um, but if you look at RPGs in general, I think the part that really appeals to me is it takes storytelling uh, to a new level, like the the addition of agency into a story turns it from um, a passive uh, voyeuristic experience into something where now there are stakes, there are personal stakes because the the characters involved or, or the main character involved isn't just somebody that you're watching. It's you. You are invested uh, and you can make choices that that alter the course of the story. So, I mean, uh, in a good RPG, like I said, there are different types. Some Many of them don't have choices that actually affect the flow of the narrative. Uh, the ones I've always worked on have and that that makes it a challenge both from a, a, a creator's point of view and uh, makes it a very different experience for the player. The I, I think there's so much room in the industry to take this kind of uh, interactive experience and uh, push it to the next level. You're starting to see a little bit of that even in entertainment. The, uh, Netflix came up with uh, the Bandersnatch special that they put out. Was it last year? Yeah, yeah. That was sort of a pick your own adventure type of thing. And everybody treated like, Oh, this is a new thing. And if you were involved in video games, you, you played that, that show and you were like, wow, this is, this is basically video game narrative one Oh one. But (laughs) even, even so the fact that this is starting to enter into the public consciousness is something you can do. I mean, uh, from a video game perspective, there's still so much room because uh, we've been treating these games as solely games and that, in order to make it a game, it has to be this very limited thing. When the the idea of narrative, there's so much more room to explore where um, this kind of thing that, that Netflix was doing with Bandersnatch and the kind of thing that video games do, there's all this space right in between where it can be as much entertainment as it is game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's such a good point. And I think like it's something that uh, I remember actually looking at sort of some of the uh, the background info around Bandersnatch that they – uh, even talked a lot about the different tools they were using to try to, you know, do the 
the production work on you know putting all the timelines in place and they were essentially right. using a lot of the the kinds of tools that get used probably by people like yourself in the games industry to to just make sure that your your pathing and things make sense and that everything is going to yep. fit together in the right ways um yeah it, it makes me think about you know what would if someone out there is sort of thinking about that idea of saying how do i start playing with narrative design myself or, or that kind of uh, interactive writing um you know, what are the things you might encourage someone to do in that case? Well, it depends on whether or not they're talking about games specifically, because there there are a number of um, tools out there um, in the gaming sphere which are designed to put uh, be put in the hands of users and allow them to make their own games. One very uh, common one, uh, common example I could bring up is it's called Twine. Uh, it's narrative only. So you're just doing writing, but it allows you to create blocks of narrative that you you visually put on screen and you can link them together. And uh, there is a bit of, of um, uh, scripting ability that you have to learn in order to to tell it uh, when these when to make put choices on the screen, when to to, to remove them, that sort of thing. But uh, the learning curve isn't that steep. So even if if you are coming in and you're like, I don't know how to draw. I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a programmer in any sense of the word. I just want to write and learn how to do branching narrative. That would be one I would direct someone to and say, pick this up. There are lots of tutorials online uh, on YouTube to allow you to do even the, the simplest kind of scripting. Uh, the rest of it is all down to you. Um, really trying to imagine how the, the branching affects the story. The, the toughest part when it comes to branching is, is uh, keeping each individual branch uh, coherent and, and flow so that when you're on it, you don't feel like you know, there's no jerking sensation of, oh, I, this was obviously not intended on the creator's part. It feels uh, like a very jarring, like a, the, I've, I've switched to another narrative or maybe we hit a dead end and, and no, you want, you want everything to feel like it was intended. And, and from the player's perspective, it's one smooth coherent story. And that, that is the trick, but yeah, that is the, the beginner. There's other types of tools where you could um, add um uh, visual elements in you can create entire games. There's a number of games uh, like the I don't know one called Shadowrun Returns that has a nice tool set. Uh, Bioware made one uh, called Neverwinter Nights, although it's getting a little dated at this point. Even so, um, there are there are groups out there modders uh, who form entire form their own teams who are not professionals. It's all um, it's all just uh, um, volunteer. And if somebody wants to get involved on that level, you can look for these teams and say, here, here's this thing that I'm, I'm interested in doing. I'd love to contribute. And boom, suddenly you're part of a team. And, and it's uh, as close to the professional uh, game dev experience as you can get. I, I have a recollection that Neverwinter Nights once ran kind of a, you know, as part of, I think there was like an opening at Bioware and and to uh, to find talent, they sort of asked people to go and make a, make a narrative inside Neverwinter Nights because the tool yep. could let you do it. And, um, I mean, clearly, yeah, th th those sorts of things are a pretty clear demonstration that for uh, for people inside these sorts of companies that, um, you know, I'd see it in writing, like just journalism as well, that so often when people ask what they should do that, 
Um, you sometimes have to just try to say, go and go and do it because you like yes. doing it for a while, and then you'll have stuff you can show people that you've done. <laughs> Absolutely, for for a long time, actually, Bioware used Neverwinter Nights as as a great tool that for somebody to be able to demonstrate that they actually could do the work. Now, the the thing you you often have is somebody will like will say, oh, I really want to get involved, and you you point them say, well, pick up this tool and and uh, give it a shot. And they, they're like, oh, that seems really hard. Well, it is, <laughs> but so is the job. That, that's, that, so it makes for a nice, nice little bar to sort of shave off the people who aren't even interested enough to just try, you know? Yeah. A, we, had, we, had, uh, we hired two of uh, the right writers that I can think of from exactly what you said who applied – who sent in a Neverwinter Nights module that they made. One of them, uh, really the, the narrative they made was, a, here's a, they put this level together where that it was a series of signposts, literal signposts that it would say, uh, start here. And then you would move between the signposts and there'd be a, like a character standing there who would say the dialogue and the signposts would sort of say, describe, okay, this is what's happening in this area. So they, they described the story without actually, uh, creating a full formed module because that does take a, a variety of skills. And you know what? We hired them. And in fact, uh, both the people I, can, I think of who got hired through Neverwhere Tonight's, uh, both women are still working at Bioware. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's brilliant, yeah. yeah. Um, look, and yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's just, I think, it just always keeps coming up in in people that I bump into is this whole idea of um, where do you start, and then exactly as you said that you that they're like that, but that sounds hard. And you yeah, know, <laughs> um, as you say, it's like it, well, the work is hard, and it almost comes back to where you started there. That uh, yeah, people think that it's this you know glamorous <laughs> glamorous thing that you get to swan about and tell stories and someone else will write it down for you and turn yeah. it into a thing <laughs> uh, the writing writing the narrative um it's it's particularly hard i think uh at least in my experience i imagine there are other disciplines that, that have a similar problem but the difficulty i always run into is that uh it's sometimes thought of as more a talent than a skill like it's not something that you could potentially get better at. You just either can or can't, I guess, because if people can write a sentence, they think they can write. So you get a lot of people who approach uh, the idea that they want to get into games and they can't program because that's a very, I can either program or I can't. 
I can't do art because, again, that I either think can draw or can't draw. So I guess I'll get it out. Maybe I can write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and uh, that I mean, uh, I, I get it. I get it. Uh, a lot of people play games and the story is the thing that they see right now. Uh, a story in a game uh, involves a lot of different facets. Like if when I say I, uh, I, I am the, the narrative designer, I design the narrative. But that doesn't mean that when you play the story that everything there is there because I wanted it to be there. Uh, when you're working in a collaborative uh, atmosphere like on a, on a, in a game studio, uh, story is as much – um, the 3D modelers who put together the characters and the environments, like those have a feeling and a mood. The voice actors who say your lines, the the gameplay, like how the combat runs, that's all part of the, the experience. When I put together a story, like, it's not like I think some people get the idea that uh, I would sit down with the, the the narrative team and we we would sit in a room and we would we would write out a story. We're like, yes, this is brilliant. And we go to the rest of the team and we're saying here's your story. And they're like, Oh, thank you so much. And they would run in and, and do exactly what we told them to. It's like, that is not <laughs> what it's like at all. Uh, at every stage we're working on the story, we have the other members of the team. It's like, here's the artists. And they're like, you know, uh, we, re we really want to make a swamp. We've been wanting to make a swamp for a while. We got a cool idea for a level. Can you put that into the story? Yes, we can. Or we show them what we're working on and they're like, ah, yeah, a lot of your narrative takes place in cities, but we were kind of hoping to focus on outdoor areas. Oh, so you have to go back and forth like the the, the, the combat team is saying, OK, we got these ideas for combat. So we got this array of enemies. Can, they need to be the enemies of the narrative that, that you have a reason to fight and stuff. OK, so you're working. You got to work together. And then there's how long it has to be, how, how many resources we have. Um Oh, you did this this story, but we don't have time to make this environment at all. I'm like, well, that's a key part of the narrative. They're like, eh, sorry. And so you have to go back and cut out that middle part of the narrative and say, does this still work? Do we need to rewrite the entire thing? So it is not um, – uh, you're not the director. If you, this is a movie analogy, like you know, people have a better idea, I think, of how movies are made. A narrative uh, designer is not the director. They're more of the screen screenplay writer, um, except a little bit more present. Like you can imagine somebody writes a screenplay and hands it off. And then, yeah, the movie, they make it and maybe they get somebody to change it or whatever. And the, the screenplay writer isn't involved at that point. The narrative designer is still involved right until the very end. And because uh, there's still the, the actual writing to do. Um, but it is very much uh, they are a cog in the machine, just like many other cogs. And they all have equal uh, weight. Actually, that you know that that's not often true. Often the weight falls on whichever one it has is cost the most. <laughs> yeah. uh, whether it's the anime, if you have a game with a lot of animation or a lot of voiceover, those things often cost a lot. So when when uh, the department that it has the most time crunch, the most uh, the the most that is the most expensive, when they have an issue, generally it's whatever they need is going to cause everybody else to sort of. Uh, form around them so when someone comes back down and says we don't have time to make that level well you know what uh what costs the least uh a writer you know a writer to sitting down and rewriting the level that costs less than than actually uh, getting the artist to work on uh the the 3d environment 
which is like a, a month's work and, and, a, and a lot of dollars. And they, they have to split up their time very carefully. Like when they got to work on a level, it's like you have X amount of time to spend on this no more. Right. So, um, a lot of times the, 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 the narrative designers find themselves in the position where they have to be the most agile because their effort is the cheapest. It, it, it kind of sucks in a way too, but I mean, in a way that's the, that's the bar. Like, uh, uh, if I have a narrative person come on and it's like, you cannot be precious. You yeah. cannot treat this like this is your novel and they are interfering with your precious story. You are there to help the team as a whole get that first draft of the story that includes all their ideas that includes, you know, the, the goals of the project, like the, when the, the, the project director sits down with you and says, these are the overall goals. I want this project. This is how I want it to feel. And it's a negotiation. And you're like, okay, I got the big picture. I know what the gameplay team wants. I know what the art team wants and what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do. And as a whole, I, I you go through all these stages where you start off very small, like here, Here's the one page of the narrative and everybody sort of agreed to it. Okay, now let's expand it to 20 pages. Now let's expand it to 100 pages. And suddenly we have this giant doc that everyone, you know, you've had a sort of a green light process where along the way everyone has sort of agreed to it. There's a common vision that you're, you have to build together. And then once that's done, you're the, for the rest of the project, your worth as a narrative designer is, is how agile you can be. You're going to have things that get cut for reasons that nobody really likes that, 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 uh, where the quality of your story is not necessarily the most important thing on everyone's plate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not everybody's going, well, we don't have time to make this character. Like we, we literally are out of time, but, oh, but I mean, uh, which is not to say the team doesn't value the story because the, if something has to be cut, they're going, oh, yeah, that really sucks. I know that the, oh, that would have been a really cool scene and I know it makes it tough because now we can't do that, that story and everyone kind of liked it. They know. They know. I mean the writer probably feels it the most keenly, but they know. But uh, your job is then to go, okay, I now have to take out that entire quest and find a way to take all the stuff we've already made and – still tie it together in a way where when it gets to the player, um, it looks like it was all intentional. Yeah. Look, you've, you've made me think about the fact that quite often um, with game Kickstarters that there's there's sometimes that idea of, oh, when we pass a milestone, we're going to, uh, you know, we'll add X number of new characters to the game and all this sort of stuff. And it almost feels like, like as you say, that right now you're in a phase where, or, you know, what you're making is very close to your chest and right. it gives you a lot more room to, I guess, need to you know, make big changes if required. Whereas in that case, sometimes they're trying to, you know, they're, they're promising sort of a whole set of characters that, yeah, that at some stage in the in the game-making process might need to give way or it, it kind of feels like that that can paint themselves into a corner that might be quite tricky to deal with. Oh yeah, but that 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 happens on every project <laughs> for for one reason or another. Like uh, even the 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 at Summerfall, the the project working on right now. Um, sure, uh, I'm I'm the uh, co-founder of the company and I can call the shots. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to have to make the same decisions that happened back at Bioware. I'm just I'm just the one who who is going to be very much more involved in the why of the decision. <laughs> yeah as opposed to the person down the line who gets told what the decision is, you know, but it still has to happen. Um, 
the the one thing when you have modding teams that they have trouble with as opposed to professional designers is that there's a period at the very end of a project which we call finaling where uh, that's when your schedules start to run out that's when your you know your, your your timelines are running out and the way you finish a project is you cut if this if this quest is it's you know we've been working on it and it's just not working out we cut it this character, we, we'd hope they would be better, but they just, they just aren't looking right. Or nope, we cut it, and we we sort of quickly sew. You know, but the hole that's left, you sew it up, and you do your best. But it's all about getting everything to the point where it either works or it's out, and that that is a painful, painful process. So when people are volunteers, like modders, they sometimes have a thing like, well, we don't want to cut. So they, they, they fortunately don't have a publisher that's waiting for them to release so they can <laughs> yeah. always extend their deadlines but sometimes you, you get modders that extend their deadlines ends up meaning it just goes on and it on, never and, comes on out. and people leave <laughs> yeah it never actually comes out whereas when you're professional you got to take these things on the chin and and you got to be like uh realize that this is required because uh, i've been I've, I've been on the other side of that too having a team where we didn't have the collective will to do the cuts that were necessary. And then when we ended up delaying the project too much, and then when it came out, it was clearly unpolished. And you're like, ugh, I know why that happened, but it really makes you appreciate that um, sometimes you got to kill your babies, right? You got to have that pillow and you'll be like, shh, it's okay. It's for the better. It's so everyone else can survive. <laughs> Okay, that's a grim image, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, the the kill your darlings is one thing. When you brought the pillow into it, that was definitely, whoa, hey, we're really <laughs> getting serious now. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's where I live. I've got to conjure a good thing. <laughs> True. Um, so really sort of, I guess, you know, big picture view. What are the kind of challenges of the industry today that you think about most? Oh, um. I think a uh, challenge is uh, there's been a sort of a seismic shift in um, how fans uh, view games and interact with game makers. Uh, that's made it very challenging uh, as a creator to to really stay motivated. Uh, I mean, it, it, sometimes it seems like the only way you can sort of stay in love with games is just to avoid uh on the online spaces altogether and it didn't used to be that way so that that makes it rather difficult i think there's also um a challenge coming up with regards to um uh working working standards for for companies uh the the idea of crunch as being necessary and there's been some it's led to some uh, it's led to these practices sort of being baked into the schedules of all AAA studios, even the ones that say they don't crunch. And so what they mean is they don't crunch all the time. Some of them do. Some some uh, some companies, they take bright young minds who are like, who just want to get into games. And 10 years later, these people look like they're 50 years old and they're dried up and they they hate the game industry and they're out because they've, they've been used up. And then the person, the company's like, okay. And they hire some, uh, some, you know, naive 20 year old fresh out of college again. Yeah. And so the, there's no sense of security in the industry. There's no sense of permanency. Uh, and I think there's a growing movement to uh, unionize. And of course you got the companies on one side saying, we can't afford to unionize because they're into the entire industry is, is, predicated on them being able to make games at uh, a dollar value which has not changed in the last 20 years yeah 
Like uh, games are inflation proof, yet the cost of making games has risen exponentially. Games, the, those those sixty dollars games used to be made by a team of ten, and now they're made by a team of two hundred fifty, and yet they still cost sixty dollars. So the the what is what is what has changed is that they got to sell, they got to make games that sell even more, and it has become a big big business. But even now, even that's not enough. So they got to have like okay. We got to keep people playing. We got to make it multiplayer. We got to have DLC and and uh, free to play with baked in costs because that's the only way companies can survive. And that's still not enough. So they got to take their teams and make them work like uh, like dogs, 12, 14 hours a day. And yet, on average, a person who works in the industry gets paid less. Like you got some people who are programmers that it. I mean, I think I'm sure every programmer in the industry knows that if they left the games industry, they could probably get uh, 50% to more double their wages. And that's just the way the games industry is run. And I think that as an industry, it's reaching a point where everyone realizes that's not sustainable. Mm. So how are you hoping your company pulls those levers a little bit? Oh, well, we're, you know, we're just starting out. Uh, I imagine that uh, you're going to reach a point where reality has to show its face and you got to make some compromises. But I think from the perspective of uh, uh, Liam and I, uh, if we just don't bake the like do the wrong things from the get go, like this is how we make our schedules. We're trying to to make this a company where uh, we don't expect our employees to crunch and we tell them to go home and, and we, we lead by example as well. So yeah. we're not, we don't, cause you get that as well. You get uh, companies where uh, they say, Oh, you don't have to crunch. But if you do, like you see people yeah. that are working long, long hours and they're the ones who are awarded. So that's sort of a, uh, uh, implied crunch. Yeah. You know, you don't have to crunch. But if you don't, well, you're not really working as hard as Jeff, are you? Mm. That happens a lot. Yeah. So you really have to tell people, go home. I'm going home. You should go home. And we have to make realistic schedules. And if you do that from the beginning, maybe that will work. I mean, um, maybe maybe uh, five years from now, I'll still have the studio and I'll look back at this. this and I'll be like, wow, you, you didn't know. You didn't know what would happen. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't honestly don't know. But uh, I think at some point you have to try. Um, I mean, if the if our employees wanted to unionize and I, I have to say I would honestly support it. Uh, I think that that is the kind of seismic shift that has to happen in the industry. They got to take it on the nose. They got to make smaller cheap if they have to make smaller and cheaper games for a while till they figure it out then they got to make smaller and cheaper games for a while. And, and I mean, uh, the problem is that when I that couple that with sort of the, the, um, the, the problems with fans that I was talking about earlier, that fans have this sort of this sense of entitlement, uh, would they be happy about it? Um, I don't know, but I, I, I don't think that that in the long run that had, that has to matter that, uh, they either gotta, gotta realize that there's a change coming or these studios are going to start to fall and they're not going to get their games anyway, right? So either it's going to happen or it's going to happen with a lot of lot more pain. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's what's coming down the pipe. And I think that's a, everybody who's currently in the industry, you sort of, you see it on the verge of happening. And so everyone's a little bit terrified. And that's, well, you know, if, if, if Summerfall can avoid some of that by, by trying to do the right thing from the get-go, I certainly hope that, that, that uh, that's the case.
Yeah. Look, it's such a good point about the the box price of of games because, uh, you know, yeah, like you buy a you know a, a good gaming laptop or something, you know, that costs kind of you know many thousands of dollars, and and those prices have you know have gone up a little bit. Over, though, you know, I've also seen fi- old pictures of five thousand dollar laptops from the nineties. I guess so. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe it's not quite the same thing, but uh, but yeah, that that idea that so much more labor is going into uh, the production process. Yet, uh, yeah, if someone suddenly said, "Here's the." Uh, yeah, here's that nudge up on the price. Uh, there would be a lot of uh, outrage. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think there's definitely a um, an idea in everyone's mind that a game costs X dollars. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. That that anything more, like I mean, uh, and you see that uh, as soon as there's a Steam sale, game the game gets a huge bump. Like people would much rather you know pay uh, thirty dollars for a game or twenty dollars, and I'd, I mean. Uh, it's funny because the, we're talking about games that uh, many games can – some of them can last for thousands of hours or hundreds of hours. And so compare that to the cost of a movie. A movie movie prices have kept going up. It costs me 20 to $25 to go to a movie now uh, for you know a solid two hours of entertainment. And yet uh, the games industry, the, the average game costs as much if not more than your average blockbuster. Yeah. If you're talking AAA games, yeah, the – the the last triple game triple A game I worked on oh, I I don't know the exact figure because I don't work in I didn't work in accounting, but uh, when they talk about the amount of money that goes into it, we're talking hundred million hundred fifty dollar million budgets, and overall the games industry is larger than the movie industry. A lot of people don't don't think about that, but uh, yeah, there is definitely a baked in idea in everyone's head that this is how much a, a game costs, and and if you were to jack up the price, um, people just wouldn't buy. And maybe they would, you know, maybe they'd wait for the, that first sale because now you can count on that, right? Two weeks after <laughs> yeah. release, suddenly, suddenly it's got it's twenty percent off on Steam or whatever, and so a lot of people were like, oh, "I'll just I'll just wait till the price comes down." So I think there is resistance on that front, and, I, and I'm not sure that jacking up the price to a realistic amount is uh, is feasible. So something's got to give. Yeah, yeah. So slightly separate from the whole idea of the new company, um, you know, what do you feel personally is you know the the driving mission, I guess, behind what you're hoping to achieve over the next few years? Well, I think uh, from from my perspective, uh, for Summerfall, we want to make games that make us feel good and people can feel good about. We want to we, we want to make uh, 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 stories. Um, of this start that I've always been working on, but you know, that, that definitely come from the heart. Um, and that, yeah, that I can feel proud about. I think that, that is the, the, the big thing. I, I just want to make, uh, I want to have a company that, that, um, people can like. Nice. Does that, does that sound corny? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, pff, only if it doesn't work out. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And I the- just, uh. It, it, it's I, to me it does sound a little corny even as as I say it, but it, it, it's a big task, you know, because there's just exactly. there's so many compromises on your on your table right from the get go, and it's like, do we do we do this or not do this? And will not doing this mean that that it's just uh, it's unrealistic? Is this even possible in today's environment? There's so many indie companies, there's so many indie games. Um, it's 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 a, it's a it's the field is growing exponentially and getting noticed. Even just getting noticed is is the hard part these days. 
Yeah. And look, I actually, you know, I think a better word for it isn't naive. It's earnest, right? And I think yeah. it, it, it sometimes it's pretty hard in the world today to genuinely, like being genuinely earnest kind of sometimes means, you know, being a little bit vulnerable because it's like, it sounds corny. But yeah. um, I think we could we could use more, uh, you know, earnest folks out there trying to, to do positive things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. I think... Um... That's that. That is really when when Liam and I started talking about Summerfall. That that uh, that's sort of what made us feel like, oh, I think we have a the same idea about how to approach this this audience that we feel is underserved, how to run a company, uh, what we're in business to do. I mean, would it be nice to make lots of money at the same time? Yes, yes. But I I, I honestly um, considering that, like I said earlier. Uh, the most people could leave the industry and, and make more money right in the get-go. I don't think most people are in the games industry at, with their number one goal being to get rich. Yeah. We're here because we love games. We love storytelling. Um, we love uh, when our when our fans get hyped and excited and, and they talk about playing your game and they they twitch it. And 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 show everybody and the UC fans have having conspiracy theories about what where your story is going. That that's that's what we're in it for. And I, I just want more of that. Yeah. So as a as a closing thought, uh, what do you feel like is the best advice you've received or what lesson in life do you often think back on? Well, I think um, as uh, as I think we're in three regards to games for myself. Um the the best advice I got was do not don't put too much of yourself into what you do. You you need to um, have a life. You know you need yeah. to take time off and detach because I think it was it's very industry. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, it's very easy. Yeah. Pardon me uh, to get so caught up in what you're doing that that is your life. Uh, especially when it, it's it's games, but I guess especially if it's your studio, uh, that that you could put all so much of yourself into it that there's that that there's nothing else. And I think that's that's unhealthy. It's an unhealthy example. I think that uh, balance, maintaining a healthy balance, is um, really the recipe to good mental health and to a good life, not only for you but for the people you work with. And I think uh, I, I know I had a challenge with that for a long time where my work was my identity. Um, I know when I left uh, Bioware, I've been there for, for 17 years. Um, it was hard at first because that, I, that, I, that was who I was. And when I stepped away, I knew I had to. But when I stepped away, it was really difficult at first to reconcile this idea that I wasn't what I did. Mm. And uh, so that, 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 that was tough. So I had, I, luckily I had people around me who, who were like, no, you, you have to have this, this have room for experience and room for growth that, that doesn't involve um, games. And I think even for someone, someone part starting out, everyone wants to, especially for the, the, the young and the eager, they want to, they want to just jump in and, and make it their entire life and their entire identity. And it's like, that's, that's not a, that's not a very healthy place to start. And I mean, easy for me to see, I've been doing this for, for 20 years now, but I, I think when I look back, um, that if there had been more of a conversation back when I started about mental health 
and about uh, work work life balance. Um, I would have had an easier time of it. I think that even even from a company perspective, they maybe would have had more thought to because I think the way, a lot of the way that the industry is now has just happened because nobody had any thought towards that. It just grew because um, this is what just what people did. They just they put everything of themselves into um, making their games. And so they created companies where they people were encouraged to do exactly the same. And now it's an industry that's predicated on that. So I think if there had been more of the conversation that exists now back then, maybe we would have an easier time with this transition that now um, we're facing the inevitable, right? Yeah. So are you feeling refreshed after uh, the last couple of years? Oh, hell no. Uh, we're 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 announcing uh, our crowdfunding campaign on October 11th, and that is in 10 days. And uh, I, I am filled with so much stress. <laughs> I, I, I want to constantly vomit. Um, <laughs> but it's also great. It's also great. So uh, it's, it, it's an exciting time and it's a stressful time. And I, I don't think, you know, there are two ways that the crowdfunding campaign ends. One, it fails. One, succeeds and i'm not sure which is worse so <laughs> so <laughs> yeah it's exciting. that's great so does it maybe the last couple of years feels more like you've you strapped yourself back in on the roller coaster and then you're sitting there wondering oh no what have i done <laughs> i mean uh, the last couple of years has it's been a build-up uh uh and there have been times where it's it yes uh, where i didn't feel stressed and and still it, I always felt like we were we were aiming at something, and there was there was always lots yeah. to do. And it seemed like along the way, there's been so many deadlines, so <laughs> yeah. you never you never run out of stress per se. Yes. Um, and if you if you if you do suddenly feel like you're on vacation, you start to wonder, wow, am I am I not doing enough? But that's I guess maybe that's life too. <laughs> Look, um, very best of luck with Summerfall, and um, nice. yeah, David Gator, thank you so much for uh, talking to me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That was David Gator speaking to me back in October 2019, just ahead of PAX Australia. And when Summerfall's crowdfunding campaign for Chorus, the adventure musical, went live on Fig. As we learned when the announcement was made, the game is to be inspired by great moments in musical geekery, like the Buffy episode of Once More with Feeling. And uh, the reveals so far look really original and like a really fun concept. The game beat its target of $600,000, and now Gator and the team are hard at work on bringing it to life by the end of 2021. You can keep up with all all the news via summerfallstudios.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed 
And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed. And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.